You're listening to Keystone Cold Cases, a podcast where we reignite cold cases across Pennsylvania. Hey, it's Amanda. Hey, it's Sarah. And hey, it's Chelsea. And I'm going to be starting this case on Anthony Capasso. And I want to preface this by saying that involves drug abuse. And I want to strongly say that none of us are passing judgment and it doesn't make the victim any less human because he was a drug abuser. 2020 was the deadliest year in drug history. Now that might correlate with COVID and being in quarantine, facing new stresses we as a community have never faced in our lifetimes. Uh, The drug abuse affected an estimated 19.7 million American adults who were considered 12 years and older in 2017. I tried to find statistics for 2020 and none were out yet. I'm guessing it takes a couple years to calculate all that. Now, addiction is a serious problem, and currently the U.S. is facing an opioid epidemic. It has been argued that drug abuse is a disease, and scientists believe that the addiction is a chronic disease. So please listen to this case that I'll be presenting with an open heart and open mind because addiction doesn't have a prejudice. And I guarantee we all know at least one person who has struggled on air on any varying scale of addiction. Anthony Capasso was from Green Lane, PA. He was 28 years old, and his family says that he was such a loving human being, but did have his own personal struggles. His father owned a pest control company that Anthony helped run. He had recurring issues of drug abuse. I did confirm with his past girlfriend that he had lost a child who was born and stillborn. He struggled heavily with the strategy, which spiked his drug use. He did get in trouble with the law briefly with a DUI, and then he had violated his probation by receiving private property, which is basically knowingly accepting stolen property. By 2017, he was mandated to get treatment by the court. He went to Penn Foundation for his addiction problems. While in treatment, he met Annie, and they both fell in love pretty fast. I talked to Annie, who had reached out to me. I post in multiple Facebook groups. You can ask all the ladies. I'm a Facebook person. Facebook's my jam. And um, she had reached out and said, hey, you know, we, as his family, don't think that this case gets out there enough. And honestly, I've worked in that area as a babysitter. Well, previously when I was babysitting for like eight years, I never heard of this case. I was there all the time, never heard of anyone talking about it. So I was pretty surprised because I was older and I should have known about it. And she like begged, she was like, we, we don't know any other ways to get this like information out there. So can you do this case? And so obviously I was like, sure. And so Annie, that's how I got talking to Annie. And when I talked to her, she said that he was such a family man. And after they were done programmed together, they both made the decision they wanted to have a baby, which I think is extremely fast. But for some people, that's the thing. They didn't expect it to happen so soon. I do know that some people it takes forever. Other people you can look at and they're having a baby. But in December 2017, they found out they were pregnant. And after only two months of knowing each other, they were engaged. So I think sometimes that a pregnancy is almost a way to kind of force yourself to stay on track. Um, I've heard of mothers doing that for sure, because they start to think about, well, if I put anything into my body, 
then it's going to affect the baby. Um, a little bit different because, you know, the fathers don't physically carry the child. But I have heard that before that, you know, uh, quick relationships or quick pregnancies or something like that will come into play either accidentally because sometimes it just happens or intentionally in order to kind of keep themselves on the straight and narrow to try to, you know, make sure that their efforts keep them sober, basically. It's kind of like a replacement. So like a lot of people that go from smoking cigarettes, go to chewing gum um, or whatnot. So they're, they're doing something and not thinking about it. So that could be the situation where they wanted to have a baby to kind of focus on something more positive in life than um i uh, i was kind of surprised because usually in like those types of group things they're like highly suggest not to like date somebody that also struggles because then it's like i don't know it's an easier slippery slope you know yeah i can see the positives of that though because someone knows has been in your shoes and understands yeah more i think it's hard like um i i read i mean when i was reading about like statistics and stuff i didn't see specifically but i know like when like my mom was struggling with it and i know like friends have struggled with it it takes so many times in a rehab before it like actually happens and i mean and it has to be like all up to you even if you go into a rehab willingly, like, you know, you have a problem until you're ready to make that decision. It's not going to happen. No one's going to make it for you, but you. So I guess it depends on the person, but I do know that I've heard, you know, it's harder in a relationship if you're both struggling. I can see that. Yeah. But you know, they seemed happy and everything should have been happily ever after. Right. But unfortunately, that was not the case. Anthony started showing signs that he was relapsing with drugs. Annie noticed he was getting more aggressive. And in her words, he was being louder and his personality shifted. When confronted, he said he was doing steroids to get ripped. Annie assumed he was getting these on the black market, but her gut was telling her it was more. A quick note in here and and a plea out to our listeners. And before we started recording tonight... Um, Amanda and Chelsea were both also mentioning some similar connections here. But when you feel that gut instinct with anybody in your life that either is potentially relapsing or you think they're just getting into something for the first time and you're afraid that, you know, they're showing signs of addiction or abuse or anything like that. Please go with your gut instinct. Um, not at all saying here, you know, Annie should have done anything different. She's not to blame for any of it. I'm just, it kind of popped into my mind here because we're talking about her gut instinct. Um, my brother lost a friend last week as a result of addiction. Um, and something that I have seen so many of the family members and other friends say is, I wish I would have seen the signs or I wish I would have followed my gut. Um, so obviously no fault falls on, on anybody for his actions, but just my little tangent here that if you start to see things and you have that concern, just go with your gut because we don't want to keep reporting on cases like this. I think another thing to mention too is 
from my point of view, like working on an ambulance, the majority of people that overdose or fatally overdose um, tend to be after rehab because they get clean and then they feel that they can still do the same amount of drugs that they did prior to. Um, and so the majority are, are afterwards. So it's like they should be watched a little bit harder or a little bit more and, you know, pick up on those cues as soon as you can. And the thing is when people are doing drugs, there are signs. And sometimes I feel like there's this huge, I don't know, stigma on drugs. People don't want to talk about it. People don't want to recognize it or don't want to admit that they know somebody that is doing drugs. I, and honestly, it doesn't matter who you are. You can be rich, you can be poor, any color, any race, any religious, you know, affiliation, it does not matter. And when you're on drugs, you're a different person. You would do things like unspeakable that you would never think you would do when you weren't on them with my mom struggling with drugs. It was, it was the worst. Um, and there was two different people and you could definitely tell this person that, you know, you're supposed to love will steal from you, will lie to you, will tell you anything just to get their high. And it's not fair. And some people just don't want to deal with it because it's hard and it is hard. And I hate that not a lot of people talk about it. They just kind of push it right under the rug and it's up there with mental health. Yeah. Yeah. Sweep it under the rug. And sometimes, you know, you can try as hard as you can. And I mean, in this case, um, this friend of my brother's literally just went off the grid. I mean, no one could find him. No one could get a hold of him. Um, so, I mean, there's not always something that you can do. Um, but I think it is something that we definitely need to work towards. I feel like as a society, we are much more accepting of mental health and therapy and treatment and everything. And I think we need to start looking at addiction in a similar way because it affects so many more people than we realize. Absolutely. And it affects anybody. I mean, anybody can become addicted to anything. It's not just drugs and alcohol, but and the thing that like really upsets me is people having that preconceived notion that a drug addict is someone that is like smoking weed in their best friend's basement and then goes to something else. Like one of the biggest drug dealers is big pharma. Uh, and nowadays yes. they're more vigilant. But when my dad, uh, when I was one, my dad, uh, had a drug overdose and he died. Um, and oh he had epilepsy and he was getting medication and he was having issues. And he, instead he was getting addicted to his prescriptions. And obviously mm -hmm. the doctors like, you can't have more. Well, back then they weren't checking what other doctors you're going to. So he was going to multiples. So my, I remember my sister telling me when my mom, she took money out on her house, our house got, um, foreclosed on. We were like trying to, my sister, I was young. My sister's 10 years older than me. So I was only 12 at the time. My sister was trying to collect like not valuable stuff, but memorable stuff. Like I have, I think two pictures of me and my dad and she, my sister's a huge picture person. So she was going through stuff, trying to find pictures. And she just found bags of empty bottles upon empty bottles that were my dad that he had like hidden away in the house that we found like 12 years later. And it's just crazy because 
now I guess doctors are more vigilant, but I mean, I know it's happened to kids that I've graduated with recently. So how vigilant is it? And it's just, it's scary. Yeah. It's almost like a drug addict or any type of addict is less of a person. Yep. And it's hard. And maybe this is too personal, but me and my sister, when we go to family reunions, we're like the black sheep because my mom and dad were like that. No matter what we've done, I was the first in my family to graduate. My sister has like three kids, very success successful, has a husband and everything. It doesn't matter. They still look at us like we're trash just because how my parents were. And that's like family. And I don't really consider them family. Family is the people that you, you know, create and love, but it's a real shitty thing. It doesn't even, it's not even the person that was doing drugs. It's everyone's affiliated with them. And I was only, I was a kid. My sister was a kid, Yeah, but it didn't matter. So it sucks. Okay, now on to the story. Sorry for the tangent. Now, he, when Annie started kind of thinking that he was getting into drugs, he had confided in her that he was worried and stressed about his second child. He was terrified of losing another child, which is like, I mean, pretty obvious and losing a child. I can't even imagine. I had my son super early at 22 weeks and it was really touch and go. And I haven't even had another one and I didn't even lose one. I was so terrified of having another one to possibly lose it. I have no idea how he could be thinking. And it was so traumatizing. So I can't even imagine how stressed he was. I mean, there's nothing you could do about it. So the longer her pregnancy went on, the more signs she started to notice. He would disappear into the bathroom for an hour. He would getting behind on bills. He was going out at night and at times barely able to keep his eyes open. On the day of March 4th, 2018, there was an explosive fight when he point blank admitted he relapsed, even though she had already known he was supposed to have a drug screening the next day and told her he wanted to get one good high before going and failing the test. And apparently he had to get these drug tests because he had, um, was in trouble when he was on probation, but he was fake. Um, I guess faking them. She said that he would always ask her for pee and she would say no. And he would get pee from other people. I have no idea how that works. I had to get drug tested for like a job and I damn near thought they were going to sit on the toilet with me. I was like, how do people fake this? Yeah. They drug tested us in high school. Um, they would go in and they put like dye in the toilet and it, yep. there was dye in the tank. So like you couldn't, or no dye in the tank. So you couldn't flush and they had the water shut off. So you had to like pee in and yeah, it was a whole big thing. It was traumatizing at like 16 and 17, but drug testing was Jeez. real in Halifax. Yeah. I have no idea how he was faking it. And I kind of asked her about it and she's like, you know, I never wanted to be a part of that. So I didn't get involved. So I have no yeah. idea how he's doing it. Annie told him not to come back if he was going to get high. His plan was to go meet friends to get drugs and then crash at his dad's place until he came down from the high. She called his father later in the day, but Anthony had never showed up. Anthony was last seen in his home on Sunday, March 4th, 2018 by his then girlfriend. Later at 3.30 a.m. March 5th, his car was found on the ramp of Route 1 leading into the westbound Schuylkill Expressway. His car was partway in the ramp lane. His mother was contacted because the car was in her name. Annie was confused why his car was located there because none of his friends lived in Philly. And he had specifically told her he was going to a friend's in Red Hill, which is give or take about an hour from Philly. 
the car was just sitting like halfway in the lane, like partially on the berm and partially in the lane. Yeah. When I asked anybody, she said it was more in the lane. That's insane. Um, it sounds like a drug deal gone bad to be like that quick of a, like leave it in the middle yeah. of the road kind of thing. Like getting off the highway and then just running out of it. Cause I'm assuming he was not found in it. No. Mm-mm. Right. So, I mean, is there a thought that maybe he went to Red Hill, meet up with this friend, and then maybe they had to go into Philly to score so they could get high? Or she didn't say anything about that. But honestly, uh-huh. going to school in Philly, there's a lot of drugs, a lot of drugs getting passed around, sold. I mean, that is a very good yeah comment. I mean, it's a definite possibility. Did the car have gas? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's not like he was driving back from Philly, getting a score, and then... Ran out of fuel. Ran out of gas on the... I mean, I would, because I'm really horrible with gas. My poor husband has to put gas (laughs) in my car all the time. Oh, no. (laughs) I've never run out, but... Yeah, thanks. I get anxious when I get below half a tank, and I have to go fill it up. Oh, no, I drive with a light one. (laughs) Thanks, husband. But the police did find his wallet and his ID, but his keys were never located. One of his windows was down when it was found as well. I was curious about his whereabouts that day and if they pulled any of his phone's content to see who he's in contact with before disappearing. And he says that the cops did pull the pings off his phone, but the Marlboro police didn't know how to interpret the results. So what do you mean didn't know how to interpret the results? Um, and I, maybe there's not any further clarification on this, but like, the data was difficult to read, so they couldn't place him at all? Or were there, like, pings all over the place and none of it made sense, so they couldn't narrow it down? Annie didn't uh, okay. elaborate on that okay. at all, unfortunately. They also told the family they couldn't pull deleted messages, what I, which I kind of want to call bull on, but I could totally be wrong. So, I think... If you have, you know, like a plan with a major carrier, you can petition. I think you have to go through the court system and petition the um, phone company to get the texts and whatnot. But if it was a burner phone, if it was like a reloadable phone that you, you know, buy minutes for, if it was a month to month plan, or even just on like Cricket Wireless or, um, like something other than basically like Verizon and AT&T and T-Mobile, like something other than kind of the big ones. I wonder if maybe they can't like store the messages anywhere. I mean, I don't know for sure. I'm just kind of thinking. And if they were just out of rehab, if they had just gotten new phones and, or, you know, maybe they were doing month to month or I don't know. I'm. I'm thinking it's either a really long process that would be difficult to do or they got shot down or they just physically couldn't do it with those phones. It's expensive. From what I'm told, it's super expensive to pull the messages and it's a lot of red tape to get them. Which is so sad. It is. It is. Um, We... So a company that I worked for, the email was hacked and it was a nightmare to get Comcast to, um, 
participate in trying to figure out like who hacked it and all of that. And you, they wanted us to get like lawyers involved. It was this whole big thing. So, um, they just make it extremely difficult to gain access to that kind of like how Apple is where like you can't unlock the phone unless the owner says. So I think it's more or less like, yeah. Are they going to go through, and this sounds horrible, but are they going to go through all of that with his history? Yeah. I think is kind of what it comes down to. I mean, it's expensive to do it, and you know that he was out on this last bender. Is it worth going through all of that? Which is a shitty way to look at, like, a human's life. But Yeah. The family says that the police think that at this point it's kind of a search and rescue. The family said the cops did ask if it could be a suicide, but like, dude, where's the body? I feel like we always ask this question. Like every time we have that thought, it's always, but where's the body? If he OD'd with like in Philly and they dumped it somewhere because you're in a big city and so maybe look at yeah. unidentifieds in the Philly area around that time and see even maybe not even in that specific time, but maybe even later on if they seems like maybe he was taken from the highway. I don't, I don't know. It's just throwing stuff the out thing, there. The thing to me though, he was a big guy. He was six feet tall and weighing roughly three ten. Like there's no way there's just one person doing this. Like if they did kill him, like, that's a lot of dead weight. Like me just carrying my son, I'm like, is hard. And if someone that's 310, there, it, there's no way it'd be just one person. And maybe to get, maybe someone was like in a car next to his car and did it, maybe. But if like a body was found, I feel like that would kind of be a fast ID, right? I don't know. I mean, I have a friend who like does lifting and bodybuilding and she's working her way up. But I mean, her big milestone she just hit was 315 pounds. And she said like, that was so much training to get herself to that point. Like, and I mean, she's been weightlifting for, uh, I think two or three years at this point, if not more. And I mean, if you're training for that long and 315 is difficult, I can't imagine just, you know, standard human strength, even if it is a strong person, to pick up and get rid of a six foot tall, 310 pound person is crazy to me. For clarification, she can lift that. She doesn't weigh that. Yeah. Okay. Did I say weigh? <laughs> I think. Oh. Or at least that's how I took it. And I was like, she's been working on it for three years, but it makes more sense that it's lifting, not she weighs. Yeah. That. She can, um, she can lift that. If I, <laughs> if I said weigh, I did not mean that I meant she can lift that. So the family feels that the police wouldn't take it seriously, that it was just another junkie that went missing. Uh, and in the Philly area, unfortunately that is a very high number. Uh, the case has been hand handed back and forth between the Philadelphia police because that is where his car was found and the Marble police because that is where he lived. Anthony's family got in contact with local organizations to help with search parties, but nothing was ever found. The mom has set up his accounts to get alerted if he were to ever try to use his personal info again. And Annie, still to this day, is in charge of his social media accounts. Now, she said it is hard just getting this case out there, as I mentioned before. 
and she was kind of really sad when talking to her because in the beginning, I guess all their friends and family kind of were involved in reaching out, asking how things were spreading the information. But now after like three years, it's kind of dried up. No one calls anymore. Now, granted, she is with another person. I believe she's married and she just had another kid recently with someone else and she lives in another state. So I'm sure it's probably no one wants to bring that up all the time. But even with his family back here, his parents, they say the same thing that it's kind of just like everyone's moved on, which is sad. At the time of his disappearance, he was wearing gray basketball shorts, an orange t-shirt, a bright yellow hood liner, and bright blue shoes. He is a white male with brown hair, brown eyes, at the time had a goatee, and he has dentures. If you have any information, please call Marble Township Police at 215-234-9161. The family is offering a $5,000 reward for anyone who can provide information on finding him. Now, I do want to switch over to a positive note because usually we don't get a lot of those positive notes. Um, Annie, his girlfriend at the time, did go on to have their baby. Uh, The little girl is three now. And Annie has been clean from heroin for four years and clean off meth for two years. And if you're listening, I want to say I'm so proud of you because I know it isn't easy. And when talking to her, I actually found out that she was in a case that I was very familiar with when I was 15. Me and Annie are actually the same age. Her mother shot her up with heroin when she was just turning 15. And that's what started her drug addiction. And um, I remember that story because it reminded me of my mother. And I always felt so bad for her. And it's just crazy after all these years that I would be able to connect with her. We talked for a while. And I'm just glad that she is doing so much better for herself. She seems very happy. And she, even though her daughter's young, they still talk about Anthony trying to keep him in her life. And I just want to say that I wish the best for you. And my heart goes out to you. This episode of Keystone Cold Cases is sponsored in part by Coco Counseling Center in Hershey, PA, two blocks off of Chocolate Ave. Coco Counseling Center is a Christ-based counseling center specializing in therapy for individuals, couples, and families. Mental health is important to us here at KCC, and great therapists are the first step in seeking treatment for mental health. Coco Counseling Center provides just that. Highly qualified therapists who are real people and who have experienced the real world. For more information about appointments, insurance coverage, and areas of expertise, check out CocoCounselingCenter.com. That's C-O-C-O-A CounselingCenter.com or call 717-298-1366. In the mid-1980s, one Texas city was gripped in fear. One by one, women were disappearing. They were eventually found, but not the way anyone wanted. From the pages of the reporter's notebook comes an in-depth look at an extraordinary era of fear. We focus on seven cold cases among a long string of murders, and we think we know who the killer was. You'll hear from some of the victims' families and friends and people who work these cases 
along with a Pennsylvania expert in the behaviors of serial killers. Unfortunately, with serial killing, the more killing that you see, the more clues that you get at the expense of human life. More than 35 years later, the families are still waiting for proof, still waiting for justice, still waiting for peace. Search for Still from the Reporter's Notebook, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Chelsea. Hey, it's Grace. Hey, it's Sarah. Hey, it's Amanda. And today we are going to be talking about the case of Patricia Neal Randolph, who is also known as Baby Doll. Two men were walking along Anderson Road in Darlington Township on a Saturday afternoon on November 19, 1977, which was the last road before leaving the state going into Ohio. When they saw something in the brush, they walked closer and saw that it was a young African-American woman. She appeared to have been about 15 years old and was lying face down and was naked from the waist down. Given the location, police immediately came to the conclusion that the body was dumped there and there had to be a second crime scene somewhere. So who was this young girl and who could have left her on the long side of the road like trash? The body was transported to Beaver County's coroner's office for an autopsy to be performed. The report showed that the young girl had put up a hell of a fight prior to her death. She had a laceration on her lower lip, multiple abrasions to her thighs, legs, abdomen, and neck, button imprints on her right thigh, yet no semen was found present vaginally, anally, or orally. That's interesting, considering she was naked from the waist down. I'm wondering if they left her like that strictly to shame her. I'm also wondering if it could have been an assault with objects or, and this is just kind of me being an idiot, is it possible that he could have just had a condom on and then that would stop? I mean, I know it's not foolproof, but maybe it worked out that none of his semen was present for that reason. Do we know if there was anything like else, like lubricant or anything like that? found um the report says oral and vaginal smears by the state police laboratory failed to reveal the presence of sperm or seminal fluid and that it would indicate that sexual assault probably did not occur so i don't know what that means as far as like if it was something other than the obvious object that you put there right i mean obviously those Two things don't need to be present for it to be an assault. Um, yeah, that's that's odd. Yeah, I'm it doesn't really. Curious about that. It doesn't really rule out. But then, way. even with that, even if you don't find sperm on it, can't they tell if there was trauma to the area? You would. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah I think that if they did find something like that, that maybe they would have, they would have marked that she was possibly sexually assaulted other than probably did not occur. So maybe they were just looking that there wasn't trauma, so they were looking for some kind of fluid to confirm yes or no. It's my suspicion. That would make sense. Ultimately, she died from strangulation, though, and the toxicology report showed that she had a blood alcohol level of 0.34. So, Holy cow. Yeah. For reference, zero is obviously sober. Um, the level... 
0.08 is legally intoxicated in the state of Pennsylvania. Anything above that is very impaired. A blood alcohol content of 0.40 is potentially fatal. So with that being said, the level, from what I'm understanding, and I am not an ME and I don't do anything with blood, so the blood content can rise after death, which could be an indication Mm -hmm. that she has a liver issue or early stages of liver issue or, um, but it shouldn't be taken like as a true indication of how much alcohol she consumed is the point I'm trying to make. Um, so I linked a website so that hopefully someone else can make more sense of it than me. Um, they also found healed scars on her left eyebrow and her left wrist as well. And she also had remnants of chewing gum on her neck. But this didn't answer the question, who was she? The coroner was actually the funeral director at the time as well. So he decided to embalm her, which apparently brings out the features a little bit more and makes it easier for someone to sketch or reconstruct what she would look like. At first, the police did a sketch and apparently it was really a crude interpretation of her face and I don't know if it was ever released. I couldn't find an actual copy of it. So the coroner asked his brother-in-law, who was an artist in school at the time, to come sketch her. And that photo is what was passed around and showed on TV. So had she been dead for quite a while when they found her? So she was in an advanced state of decomp? Or was her face just messed up from the assault? Um, Why did they kind of have to reconstruct that? Um, So... I think it was more because of the injuries, because it was only six to eight hours from the time of death to discovery that was determined by the coroner. It didn't take long before the woman was ID'd by her very own sister. Um, The body was of 21-year-old Patricia Eastern Randolph from Homewood Bushton section of Pittsburgh. Patricia was very petite, so she looked younger than she really was. According to Beaver County Crime YouTube channel, and I've mentioned it before, they have a YouTube channel with all the details of their cold cases. And if you're from the area, I urge you to watch it because it's really helpful. Um, She had a rough upbringing and didn't seem to get any better with age. She had a boyfriend that was known to be physically abusive to her, and she dealt with it by drinking. Eventually, Patricia wasn't able to hold down a job, so she found herself working the streets of Pittsburgh under the new name Baby Doll Randolph. So, I think we've touched on this before, and I want to make sure that we're very clear when we talk about sex workers, or really any case on here. There's a stigma surrounding sex workers that they're not important and that they're not deserving of help. However, it's just a stigma. We at Keystone Cold Cases believe that every single person deserves justice, regardless of age, sex, race, or sexual orientation or career path. Just because someone doesn't believe what you personally believe in doesn't mean that they're any less valuable as a person. This woman was someone's child, sister, and friend, and she has people that loved her and still love her and continue to search for answers. So please keep in mind that when we discuss cases like this or any other, that every single person deserves to be treated with the same respect and compassion. Now, with that being said, um, now that they have a name, authorities were able to start to piece together her life and the people that were in it. She was last seen on Friday, the day prior to her body being discovered near her home, and family didn't know that she was missing or something was, was wrong. Police quickly learned that Baby Doll had a pimp, and 
and he just happened to have a violent past. So Edward Surratt was a convicted murderer and suspected serial killer. So a quick history on Edward. He was born into a, what you would think, typical family. His father was a businessman. He was doing really well in school, but then he just wasn't. I'm wondering if a head injury was involved here. There's always a head injury involved somehow. I didn't see a head injury missed. So he has a... Oh, it's there somewhere. (laughs) It's there. He has a long history of problems with authorities, though, and he started skipping classes and spending time on the streets. He was arrested for disturbing the peace and actually punched a police officer in the face. He was convicted of assault and spent 14 months in SCI Camp Hill. When he was released, he started college, but he lost interest, so he worked odd jobs until he was drafted into the Army. He was stationed in Fort Dix, where he was disciplined on two occasions— once for injuring colleagues with a pipe during a fight, and another for leaving his post, which he was then arrested for possession of illegal weapons. He was discharged only to bankrupt his father's company. His father ended up with cancer, so he got the company and he blew it. Um, And then he ended up signing up for the Marines. He was injured in Vietnam and sent home with a Purple Heart. He resorted to driving tractor trailers to make end meet. Only three years later, he was charged for attempted rape of a 13-year-old boy in Virginia, where he served a four-year sentence. It was after he was released that things really started to heat up. See, he drove for the trucking company from North Carolina that stopped in Pennsylvania and Ohio. And, you know, obviously, we know that Pennsylvania is the Keystone State, why we named our podcast the way we did, but... It's not called the Keystone State just for fun. I mean, it really is a Keystone, um, you know, back when we had the 13 colonies. But also now, I mean, it's you have to go through Pennsylvania to get between major hubs of transportation, um, thinking like if you're going basically south out of New York City, you have to go through Pennsylvania. We have Pittsburgh, we have Philly, D.C. is so close. If you're going north to Boston, you're going to end up going through Pennsylvania. So we really do see this theory of some sort of truck driver being involved in a lot of these cases because there are so many major highways and interstates that run right through the state with virtually untraceable, at least, you know, back in the 70s. For where it's basically, hold on, what am I saying? In the 70s, it was pretty much untraceable who was on what road other than their own logs. So if they didn't write something down in a log, then, you know, they would have no connection to a certain location. So there's just my truck driving input. All along his routes, unsolved murders started popping up, 27 of them to be exact. But there was never any evidence until he was found driving 66-year-old Luther Langford's vehicle. Luther happened to have been found dead just days prior after being bludgeoned with a baseball bat. Of course, this wasn't the only charges that he had had over the years. They ranged from burglary, assault, rape, and so on. So why is he important in Patricia's case? Well, supposedly he was her pimp 
And they had argued a few weeks prior to her death and not just like a verbal argument, but a full on pushing shoving match to the point that they were removed from the bar. Eventually, Edward came back in upset and he told an unidentified witness that Patricia would need a ride home. There's plenty of other cases in the area that Edward was believed to be involved in, and we plan on diving into some of those later on in the year. So her body was found right off the road, so no one had even tried to hide it. Um, I could completely believe that her violent pimp murdered her, but maybe it was someone trying to send Edward a message. Or alternatively, Edward sending a message to other sex workers to say, this is what happens when you cross me. And I also wonder what they were arguing about. My assumption is that it was about money, but it would still probably be a good thing to know. Definitely. Um, The other theory, though, on the flip side of that is that it was a heavily traveled truck route um, and that there was a major truck stop nearby. So she could have been picked up by someone while she was, quote, working and murdered and then dumped on the side of the road, which then goes back to like Edward was a truck driver. So so when I hear that someone died by strangulation, I almost always immediately assume that the murderer knew the victim personally. I mean, strangling someone is so up close and personal and it takes some serious strength and potentially rage um, since you have to keep that consistent pressure for so long. So maybe it was a regular customer. I mean, another thing with strangulation is that it's also really hard to trace. Um, and, you know, skin doesn't absorb fingerprints. Um, you can't, you know, trace the shape of a thumbprint the way that you can, you know, trace a bullet. Um, and I know DNA has changed a lot since this time as well. But, you know, you figure if you've got a gun, the bullet can tie back to it. Or if you use a knife and in the heat of the moment, somewhere you end up dropping it and it gets discovered and it can get traced back to you. You know, like I, I think that I don't ever want to say a benefit to a, a cause of death, but like a upside for the person doing that would be that there's nothing physical to find right? Like you don't have a weapon, you don't have anything like that. So I wonder if maybe that was part of why the strangulation as well. I know there was another case that I had researched that we'll do in in the near future that the guy was a serial killer and he was perfecting i guess his craft if you want to call it and he got to the point where he could strangle someone and not leave marks because he was so good at it so um there's that side of it too obviously that wasn't the case here but um he didn't he did it to sex workers it wasn't a personal thing i mean i'm sure there's an underlying personal effect to it but i also wonder like if it wasn't 1977 would we have like touch DNA like we do now and the also also the other thought is if it was a truck driver and like she got in the truck at the truck stop and they were maybe making out and that might account for the gum found on her neck if it was they were in the middle of things and things got heated and he strangled her and then shoved her out yeah i'm i guess i'm thinking now too you don't necessarily have to strangle someone with your hands either. So, Touché. 
I mean, was there anything in the autopsy report that said maybe something was used to strangle her, like a belt or a scarf or something like that? No. I don't know if there were any ligature marks. Okay. No. They just said that strangulation. And so I was kind of looking for this theory, and I haven't heard it, um, but I know that you mentioned before she had an abusive ex. Um, Do we know anything about that situation, if he could be connected back to her or anything like that? There is no mention of him at all anywhere that I found. Hmm. So I'm assuming that they never located the primary murder site. I think it was always assumed that it was in a vehicle or a type of vehicle or a truck. Um, But that's just my assumption. And since they don't know who did it, they don't really know whose car to look at. So the family and police are still searching for answers. If you or anyone you know has information on the murder of Patricia Neal Randolph, we urge you to call Beaver County Crime Solvers Tip Line at 724-774-2000 or Beaver County Detective Bureau at 724-773-8550. Tips are also welcome at the Pennsylvania State Police at 724-773-7400. That's all we have for this episode of Keystone Cold Cases Podcast. Please remember never to reach out to family or friends of the victims, only to law enforcement if you have any tips. This episode was researched and hosted by Chelsea Brown. Find all of our sources, social media connections, and contact information at kccpod.com. Theme music and production assistance from Darren Makins. Join us again next week for another case to sleuth out.